0: Today's show is brought to you by Zip Recruiter, the presenting sponsor of Recode Media. You know what's not smart? Running two public companies at the same time. I mean, I know one person who can do it, but you probably can't, so don't do that. You know what is smart? Hiring with Zip Recruiter. Zip Recruiter's powerful technology finds people with the right experience for your job and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. Zip Recruiter is the smartest way to hire. And now our listeners can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. Today's show is brought to you by Hilton. When you travel for work, do you stay by the airport or do you stay downtown? Do you take your clients out for dinner? Do you have room service? Should you pack your swimsuit? How do you answer these questions? Just ask yourself, what would the boss do? Here's the answer. The boss would choose Hilton. Hilton has modern meeting spaces and amazing pools and everything else you need to get down to business and a little pleasure. So check out Hilton hotels and resorts and travel like a boss. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I am part of the Vox Media Podcast Network here in Fashion Week in New York City at Vox Media headquarters. My standard ask is if you like this show, tell someone else, not me tell me too but tell someone else about this show so they can listen to it for free thanks i'm here with imran ahmed who among other things is editor-in-chief of the business of fashion i was googling him today and i saw a guardian headline imran do you remember what this headline says yes (laughs) describes you as fashion's most influential man Mm -hmm. so that's why i dressed up today what do you think? (laughs) You look great. I look great. I, Fantastic. I was, there was a brief moment this morning. I said, "I'm meeting He's a fashion guy. I should, I should dress up. I should dress nice." And I thought, the only thing dumber than a schlubby middle aged dad going to meet a fashion guy would be a schlubby middle aged dad trying to dress up for a fashion guy. I am glad got you me. came
1: as yourself. I am in in my streetwear. Mm-hmm. You look lovely. What are you wearing today? I am wearing a sweater that I bought at this store called Joseph. No, and I'm wearing not some- Joseph Abu. Not Joseph Abood, it's Joseph, a London chain of boutiques. They have an in-house brand, which I really like, and I'm wearing some APC jeans. I've heard of APC. Mm Here, I'm going to further explain my fashion
0: ignorance. You're here. It's New York Fashion Week. Yes, it is. Which is is
1: ongoing, ending? It ends
0: tomorrow. You threw an event here. Often when I have a guest on, there's a lot of overlap between— if I have an editor of a a publication, there's a lot of overlap between that publication and maybe my listenership. I'm guessing less overlap, but not entirely a lack of overlap.
1: But just so people understand, you're here because— I am the editor-in-chief of the Business of Fashion. Which is a
0: trade publication. Can I call it a trade publication?
1: It is one element of what we do, which is to communicate to the industry. Um, But because of the nature of fashion as a highly sought-after, highly influential global business, we communicate more to more than just the fashion industry. Um, Fashion's emerged in the last decade as... One of the most, if not the most influential pillar of popular culture it's connected to music, it's connected to art, it's connected to technology, it's connected to beauty. And so all of these industries are also paying attention to what goes on in fashion. And so we communicate with those industries as well, as well as consumers. Yeah, We call them prosumers, professional consumers. I'm familiar a little bit with this business.
0: I want to talk about the, uh, what you're doing, how you built it. Um, I just wanted to give a little pe- people a little context before we dive into that. But the re- one of the reasons you're here is you have people covering Fashion Week. Yes. Uh, but you're also throwing events here.
1: Yes, we hold an annual gala dinner for what what is the BOF 500? It's the 500 people shaping the global fashion industry. Make
0: this is this is a, a time-tested tradition for publications. You make a list of powerful people and then hope some of them show up either at your events or endorse you in some way. And mm-hmm. That's what's happening for you guys.
1: Yes, yeah, so our original goal in doing it was to kind of level the playing field amongst the people who are seen as influential. Of course, everyone knows the famous fashion designers, models, and photographers, but the fashion industry is animated by all sorts of other people who are more behind the scenes. The business people, the um, creative people who like craft shoots, the media, the academics who educate the next generation of students. But when I was Googling you, you there's a lot of photos of you standing next to the Kardashians. They're pretty well known. Yeah, well, they weren't at the event the other night. We did a, another event earlier this year where they attended. You got Kardashian power, and Tiffany Haddish crashed your party? She didn't crash. Well, I guess if, you, if showing up uninvited is crashing, then I guess she crashed. She, cool was, she, she crashed. was welcoming. She was a welcomed crasher. Uh, she came with the stylist Law Roach, who was very, very welcomely invited.
0: So, you throw on an event like that, do you make money from throwing an event like that, or that's sort of part of the
1: entire gestalt of what you do, which is—you tell me. me uh, So, the the BOF 500 ends up being supported by partners, so it is a profitable enterprise. But we don't do it for just making money. We do it as a way of bringing together our community. You get a flywheel effect, right? You have the list. The list is a big deal. You make it a bigger deal by having a party that you have to be invited to get to. You cover the party— etc etc and you know the, the whole industry is watching and it's you know so it's a genuine celebration people came from 33 countries as far away as Saudi Arabia and Nigeria and Australia so it's a global list too. So be, besides your event what is the most interesting thing that you saw at fashion week I think it'll probably be uh, what I'm seeing tonight, which is the Calvin Klein show, which is now helmed, the, the brand is now helmed by a designer named Ralph Simmons. So I can't really speak about that yet because I haven't seen it. But on Friday night, Ralph Lauren celebrated his 50th anniversary with a quite spectacular show uptown in, uh, in saw Central Park. I of that in my Facebook feed. I, I, there, there I'm, I'm, I'm one level connected to you. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty amazing because... Um, there was quite an amazing crowd there, but you know it was a real, it was a real testament to what he's built. You know, in fifty years, this like iconic American brand. It was a special moment. There's
0: multiple fashion weeks around the world. we were talking about this beforehand. And the point of having a show like that and having it covered is what are these? It, I know, like when the in the auto show, right? They'll show you concept cars that will never be created. CES shows you stuff that's never going to show up in your living room, and then they also talk about what actually is going to show up. 18 months from now. Is that the same idea for U.S.
1: Originally, this? Fashion Week was for the industry. And so it was when buyers and editors would sit and watch a fashion show and see the clothes that would be available six right. months from now. So you'd literally now. be saying, I would like to order this. I wouldn't like
0: to order exactly.
1: that. All of that is changing now because Fashion Week was closed to consumers before. And consumers didn't really see images from those shows until the clothes were hitting the stores. Now, consumers see everything as it's happening. So, the industry is in a bit of turmoil at the moment trying to figure out how to adapt the kind of production cycle and supply chain to the, the kind of fast-paced communication So, these events cycle. used
0: to be inward and you wouldn't really see glimpses of them or maybe you'd see, oh, Anna Wintour, was at a thing? But you you'd didn't see a see review, you know, like
1: critics would review the clothes but you wouldn't see every collection, you know, in every single look, every accessory, you know, everything that's available on the catwalk analyzed to death on websites, live streams, Instagram. So everybody sees everything now and the model is somewhat broken. So that's a good opportunity for you to be to build a, a
0: publication in an industry that's in turmoil.
1: Yes, and you know, the the opportunity for being a guide and a um, a source of analysis and intelligence at a time when the industry is t- being disrupted, not just by technology, but by globalization and, you know, changing social mores. You know, everything seems to be changing in the world right now, and that creates huge opportunity for us.
0: So, so all right. So, Calvin Klein and Ralph Lauren mm-hmm. for, for the, the takeaways for people to go Google afterwards. Um, now, let's talk about your business. Um, you bristled a tiny bit when I called you a trade buff,
1: but I, I don't mean that as a derogatory. No, we, we do communicate to the trade. There's no doubt about it. I guess the uh, The bristling comes from the fact that trade publications had like an have an old fashioned way of communicating mostly news. and you know news is a commodity now. So we really focus on analysis, yeah. making sense of the news, making recommendations to our readers about what it means and what what it means for them in terms of the actions they take. so it's not just about saying this happened. it's about saying this happened, this is what it means, and this is what you should yep. do. And listen, I'm, I'm my entire journalistic career, I've either been at
0: a trade pub or a trade pub adjacent thing, or I don't know what you call it, Rico, but it's, it's we, we straddle that line all the time. First of all, let's talk about what it is, then we can talk about how you built it. So I met you last spring. You explained your business. I said, "Here's my disclosure." I did know a business of fashion because Dan Frommer's wife, Lauren, Sherman, the lovely works for Frommer, you. yeah. But that was literally about it as much as I knew about it. Okay. Uh, and then I met you and said, "Wow, this is a really interesting business. You, you should come on the podcast." And, and here you are. So this is a business you created, two thousand six, two thousand seven. I started writing a blog, and and we'll, we'll go into the creation story. But but just so we level set. So yep. today you you are. Selling subscriptions? We
1: are selling subscriptions, we do events, we have online education courses, and we have a careers platform. We are getting close to 100 people across uh, London, New York, and Shanghai. And this is a business you built, you bootstrapped? I bootstrapped it for the first five or six years on my couch, but it wasn't really a business then, it was just a project that I was doing for fun. We raised uh, some money in 2013, and but I've not been, much, right? Like not that like, much, like next to nothing by
0: 2013 slash 14, 15 media mean, standards. Not not that much money, a and couple million we,
1: bucks, right? Two and a half million dollars. Yeah. We did a subsequent Series A round, which wasn't that much money either. And yeah, we've been building it together. You own it with, with your investors, have a, with own our investors, of and with uh, obviously our team. Not part well. of a conglomerate. Not no
0: Condé Nast, no hers, no, no big media. So at the one point, well, it's very impressive to employ 100 people having b- mostly built the thing on your, with your own money, both cool that you have done it without the aid of a giant media company, um, maybe scary, maybe there's a lot of upside now as you see the travails that pretty much every big media company has um, trying to support their publications, and, and you make most of your money today, how?
1: Mostly through subscription products. We have two main subscription products. One is sold on- when it's a content product that's mostly sold to end users, um, and then it's standard subscription, right? I pay you
0: X. Ex- how much is it? It's two hundred and forty dollars right? a year, and it scales up and down. There's like a student scales price. up and
1: down. Students get it for free. Uh-huh. We want students to start reading it as soon as they're starting to get interested in the industry, and we'll build a relationship from the very beginning. But the standard rack rate is two hundred forty bucks a year. Yeah. That gets me access to the website and and events you know, online access to some of the events. They get access to, you know, paid annual subscribers get the two print editions that we do. You know, we do some content that's exclusive to members only and some that's open and hits a metered paywall. Mm-hmm. And this is a new and model over, for you, right? Like, this is only the last couple of years you launched yeah, this? Yeah, we, so we launched that in October 2016, and it's, you know, it, it's already become the biggest part of our business. It's um, a really... It's a really nice business model for a business like ours. And By the way, every this is, I think, yeah. uh,
0: half-jokingly, I think every nearly everyone who comes into this room to podcast now has a subscription business um, They either have launched or are about to launch.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We um, We decided about three years ago that it was the right move for us to make. We spent a lot of time thinking about how we wanted to do it, how we would communicate it to our community, which was used to getting everything for free up until that point. And we're really, really pleased with the results. It's been it's been phenomenal. And then you have other 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 revenue streams you mentioned. So then job we have, board. Yeah, so we have a we have a product that we sell to companies as well. And companies can now buy a page on our website, which is like an employer branding kind of page. And there's different modules that companies can add to that. So they can buy access to all our content for all their employees. And or they can buy access to our jobs advertising service, which is called BOF Careers, which is, an, you know, it's like a very, very beautiful experience to talk about what it's like to work in a company. There's video, there's content that we've created, there's, you know, descriptions of the executives, there's links to news and, and for anything, if you were interviewing for a job, anything you want to know about the company is on that page. And
0: how many readers do you have? We
1: have over one million unique readers Maybe, and, then, and then what percent of those are subscribers? I don't disclose the subscriber figures, but we have you know coming on half a million daily newsletter subscribers, and they are not all paying subscribers, but a lot of that leads to the conversion.
0: Who are you displacing? who are you competing with you're competing with everyone, right? But in the core sort of, and that's your your core business, right? Is covering the ins and outs of the fashion industry. So I'm assuming you bump up against people like Women's Wear Daily. Who else is who are are you competing with for people's time and money?
1: You know, there is or there has been a, a tradition for a hundred years of, you know, trade publications focused on this industry in lots of different countries. So yes, Women's Wear Daily is here in the U.S., but there's also the Journal du Textile in France, and there's Draper's Record in the U.K., and there's their equivalents in Australia and Germany. And so on the kind of traditional B2B trade publishing side of things, you know, those are the players we tend to pump up against. But are you know, Bof Careers, the platform for companies, it competes mostly with LinkedIn. Our events business competes with the likes of you know TED and the New York Times. So each of our businesses competes with different. Kinds when you say of companies. it competes with TED or the New York Times, is someone deciding to spend ten thousand bucks to go to TED or to one of your? Yeah. So our you know the ticket price for our event is six thousand pounds. So it's the same. It's in the same kind of bracket. That's in the code bracket. Yeah. You're so competing it, with me. Yeah, it's a, and We're competing with you, and people choose. You know, people's time is limited, and all of the different products that we have, it's a lot of it is about limited time. So, there are people who choose between you know spending time at TED or spending time at you know our event, which is well, called say, Voices. say Code
0: versus BO, BoF. It sounds better, right?
1: Code versus the Code BO? Conference. Yeah, I haven't been. We'll
0: get you in. We'll right. we'll figure out a ticket <laughs> for you. You can go as press. Here, I want to talk about how you started the business, but we are an ad based business. So let's take a quick break so we can hear from a fine Code Media sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Zip Recruiter, the presenting sponsor of Recode Media. You know what's not smart? Bringing your new smartphone into the shower. Don't do that. You know what is smart? Using Zip Recruiter to hire for your business. Zip Recruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them for you. Their powerful technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. Then ZipRecruiter spotlights the top candidates for your job so you never miss out on a great match. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the US. Who rates them number one? Trustpilot, they rated hiring sites with more than 1,000 reviews, that's who. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Now, our listeners can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. I'm back here with Imran. Imran, I love hearing creation myths slash stories. Um, what's the best version of your creation myth?
1: Okay, without extending it out over we too got long. Um, well, essentially, I was a McKinsey consultant and... I'd been a career consultant both before and after business school. I was, I'd had my fill of consulting. What, did you have a specialty within McKinsey? I didn't, and that was part of the challenge. I parachute was, you into whatever business, you tackled for three yeah, months. I did pharmaceuticals, I did, you know, uh, financial services, I did real estate, I did construction, and I did that all over the world. And it was amazing for a few years. Some people love that life. It's a great life until a certain point when, you know, you reach a certain point in the career at McKinsey where you have to choose a sector. And as I went to try to choose a sector, there were no sectors I was really passionate about. You know, and I was always interested in working in creative industries. At the time, um, McKinsey didn't really have much of a presence in in the fashion industry. And so, I mean... Say it. something good about consultants, because the standard, the st-
0: in the way I cover, end up covering stuff and the way I talk to people about stuff, when, when the consultants are brought in it's either an ass-covering exercise to tell someone to do something that's very obvious, it's to give someone advice that's actually not very useful, and or it's to fire people and then to give them cover to do the, I guess that's also ass-covering. But presumably there's actually a value that, that good consultants are giving companies who pay them as well.
1: Yeah, I think if you have the right kind of relationship with your consultant and you listen to them, I think a lot of times the problem for consultants is when you know all this work is done and the advice is, is not really followed or taken and there's no actions taken from it But, you know, I have seen over my career relationships between a consultant and a CEO where there's a genuine trust-based relationship. And the
0: idea is you are going to bring me, I want outside perspective. You are not in this industry. I want fresh eyes on this problem. And you are smart and you will deliver a minimum of fresh eyes. The
1: senior people will be specialized, Uh right? So the senior person serving Condé Nast... Will have Which hires a consultant every 18 months to tell it to cut. Exactly. I think BCG is doing work there right now or something. But the senior people from BCG that are that would be serving Condé Nast will have lots of media experience. They will have seen the inside of lots of media companies. They will have understanding of what's going on in the mar- market. They'll have benchmarks and, and a knowledge base that reflects inside information about what's going on everywhere. And while the consulting firms are quite disciplined about not kind of giving out confidential information right. about their clients, there is a certain knowledge base and you know, reference point that they have. And I think in certain cases, if you ask the consultant the right question, if you get them to focus on the right things, and if you have a good trusting relationship with their consultant, um, they can be very helpful in bringing that perspective.
0: Yeah, my, my snap judgment is it always seems like this is couples therapy. By the time you call in the consultants, by the time you go to couples therapy, like you're too far down the road. You're not going to be able to salvage it.
1: Yeah. I don't know if that's necessarily always the case. I think sometimes consultants are hired for the reasons that you mentioned earlier, yeah. but in some cases, you know, I think it can be a very useful exercise. Sometimes it's just like a practical thing, which is time. Yeah, If you have a really big opportunity you're thinking about and you do not have the resources internally to you know, focus very quickly to figure out how to go after that opportunity, getting a bunch of, you know, smart people in a room um, for three months in your office, like, somewhere hold away working on that problem can maybe help you come up with an answer more quickly than you could do on your own.
0: So you're doing that, it's going
1: well, but you don't want to do it, and you think, I'm going to start a fashion trade publication. No. So I didn't know what I was going to do. I went and did this in-depth. I took three months off. I went and did a meditation course in South Africa, and I came back from that meditation course and decided that actually... I was going to quit and I didn't know what I was going to do so I resigned I had some what they call in the UK gardening leave the best expression and I spent some of that time doing my last engagement and then um, really starting to kind of meet people in different creative industries and something I met people in you know the music industry which was kind of going down it was the time of Napster and peer to peer file sharing and no one knew what digital rights management was going to do that business I got an offer in the television industry but that felt really corporate and boring and not very creative. You wanted to do something media-y or not? I, didn't, I, had, I had never interviewed with any media companies, but I was really, like, somehow drawn to fashion. So a friend of mine was working at the British Fashion Council. She stuck, snuck me into a few fashion shows, and I started kind of seeing this universe. And her boss introduced me to some fashion designers. And I'll never forget those first meetings because, like, these Really young creative people would show up at these meetings with like a stack of press, you know, and they'd they'd have all these famous people wearing their clothes, but they'd have zero business training, Mm -hmm. right? And they would graduate from fashion school, many of them, and launch a label, uh, and that's what they'd call it, a label, and they wouldn't have the first idea of how to turn that label into a you know, a like a lot of the creative business.
0: pursuits, right? Like if you're an artist, if you're a maker, uh, for a lot of people, even still today, it's 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 looked down upon to think about the business. Someone else should be handling the business. There's a new breed that says, "Oh no, m- the business is a fundamental part of the creative process. They're they're intertwined."
1: Yeah, and so ten years ago, I think in the fashion industry, creative people used to look down their nose a little bit at the business people. But in the last ten years, I think that's really shifted.
0: So. And you thought, okay, so this is cool.
1: Watching people make stuff is cool. I want to do that or I want to be adjacent to it? I wanted to be the business partner to a designer. That's what my original idea Uh was. So like lots of most talented fashion designers historically have had – a kind of counterpart. And I thought, well, you know, there's, you know, Marc Jacobs had this guy named Robert Duffy and Yves Saint Laurent had this guy named Pierre Berger and Tom Ford had this guy named Domenico de Soleil. And so I thought maybe if I met a fashion designer that I had a good personal connection with, that I could play that role. And then that evolved into an idea for setting up an incubator for young fashion designers. So I tried that for eight months, and it didn't really work out. All those things seem like better ideas than starting a, a media public... This was 2005, 2006, 2006, 2006. 2006. And so in the time when I was on this little adventure, I was keeping a personal blog for my friends and family. And I'd be, like, writing little tidbits... On Blogspot? Uberkid.typepad.com. Typepad. Oh, excellent. Yeah. And uh, I really somehow enjoyed the process of, like, uploading the photos and writing things and I'd always kept a personal journal. So the idea of like re- reflecting on things and taking time to kind of figure things out. I remember
0: out. now there was this boomlet of people saying, I am going to keep a blog and then almost all of them
1: stopped blogging because they realized no one was reading their blog and no one cared. And so that's not what happened with me. So when this company that I was, this incubator I was trying to set up didn't work out, I took the password off my blog. I erased all the like personal stuff, which is my friends and family and I just started writing Um, A blog, and I called it The Business of Fashion. And what was
0: the thing people were responding to at first? What were they reading? It
1: was such a hodgepodge of things at the beginning. Um, The first thing that got a lot of response was a series I called How to Set Up a Fashion Business from Scratch. It was called The Business of Fashion Basics. And that got a whole bunch of comments underneath saying, we want more like this. And really the whole you know, business has been built through this dialogue with the readers and getting feedback from them right from the very, very beginning. People were interested in the analytical take that I would um, use on, on on reflecting on the fashion industry. When I'd, like, go to a party and take pictures and put them up, like, people weren't interested in that. So I very quickly learned kind of by doing and responding to feedback what was resonating with people. This
0: is around the same time that in... in, in over here, there were a bunch of tech blogs who were, that were launching and generating a lot of audience or at least influence right away. And a lot of them were either booster-y or takedown y or sometimes a mix of both. And sometimes there'd be reporting and sometimes there'd be some made-up reporting. But a lot of it was a, a, a common theme that, that undergird a lot of it was we are going to take down the existing publications. We're going to take down Time Inc. We're going to take down the New York Times. And even though our readership is 50,000 people, we had this outsized influence, and it was very much an us against them, David Goliath, asymmetrics thing. Was that part of the appeal of what you were doing?
1: I don't think so. I mean, I think what people were coming for, and it was very much built by word of mouth. There was an email newsletter from the beginning that people would share, it was just a different perspective. I think...
0: But that, you were setting yourself up as oppositional to the existing n- trade publication. It wasn't or, set up
1: as a, a trade publication or right. business at all. It was just a project. For the first six years, there was no business model. Here are my was,
0: thoughts. This is interesting to I'm me. I'm
1: just writing what I think. Yeah. And I think in an industry that sometimes has suffered from a media environment that's very much, you know, in the pockets of the big brands um, is very hard... For people, you know, if your business is based on advertising to, you know, be critical. So tease that out a little bit because it is what I was sort of getting at, right? So when you say
0: in the pockets of big brands, do you mean the designers, the advertisers, and they're often the same thing? Well,
1: like if you think of the big fashion magazines, those have traditionally not made money from subscriptions. They've made money from, you know, very, very big advertising relationships with the big fashion brands. So you're talking about a Vogue or publications like
0: that, that are both getting advertising from people like Calvin Klein or Ralph Lauren or whomever,
1: and then deciding to showcase their work? Yeah. So there's, I mean, and it's a perfectly valid model, Uh right? It works. It just means that the content you create is going to be, you know, almost by definition, complimentary and celebratory. And, you know, it's not, the content's not there to take a kind of objective position on the industry. The content there is there to help sell and position the brand or the products of those brands as desirable. And that's what, you know... So, you don't have those relationships. You're outside that world. And are you consciously saying, because that's
0: not the case, I'm going to carve out my own space where I can be mm,
1: critical or... It was really, you know, I wish I I knew what I was doing at the time, but you have to remember, I didn't know anything about fashion. Yeah. I didn't know anything about media, and I didn't know anything about technology. So this I was is a good
0: way to start a company.
1: Yeah, this was just a, a you know the mindset at the time was like I'm enjoying this, and people are leaving comments, and I'm getting into like a dialogue with these people, and they're all over the world, and there's this clearly other people who are interested in this intersection between the creative and the business side. you're writing of this under industry. your name; people know who you are. I didn't really make it about me. Like it wasn't called Imran Ahmed's blog. It was uh-huh. called the business of fashion. But it wasn't out. anonymous. It was It wasn't anonymous, but it also wasn't You know, I wasn't like putting my face all over the place. But
0: again, that was some of the things when I think of the tech blogs, like you knew who Michael Arrington was or Rafat or Omalik. People were identified with the publication, even if their face wasn't on it or wasn't called Right, but
1: Ohms was called Gigo. right? right? Um, But yeah, like paid content and tech crunch. I guess this was kind of in the same... Yeah, it's
0: owner-operated, it's really one person's viewpoint, even if they start to hire staff, it's very much reflective of the way they think about the world, Kara Swisher and Walt Mossberg, like at the beginning of of the All Things D
1: days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a fair analog.
0: And so, when you're building this, what made you think, oh, this could actually be a standalone business that would pay my rent and
1: maybe one day employ 100 people? (laughs) Sure. So, what I was doing at the time to earn a living was I was an independent consultant. So, I was thinking of the business of fashion as my version of McKinsey Quarterly. So, when I was at McKinsey, they had this publication where they'd put out their ideas and it would lead to engagements and opportunities and kind of thought leadership that would lead to conversations that might result in getting a new client. And so, that's kind of how I rationalize it to myself. Very you were clear, doing marketing It was like yeah, kind of content marketing yeah. saying like this is this is what I think this is gonna mean you know these are my ideas like at a very high level. yep Very soon it became clear that it was very hard to scale a consulting business and I started receiving inbound interest about what I was gonna do with this blog. And so it was really listening to the market again people were saying, you know, you should do something with this. You know, are you looking for investment? You know, how can I, how can I work with you? How can I help you? And did you have
0: a model for how you could turn your thing you were doing in your apartment into an actual business? There or is was it just
1: sort of self-explanatory? There was no model. It wasn't until I sat down in 2012 and said, "Okay, this has like grown beyond my ability to manage it on my own." By that stage in 2012, there was you know I had a few contributors, I had an editor working with me in New York part time, and I had a full time. Um, assistant in London. And that rickety infrastructure could just not sustain or benefit from all of the opportunity. And so the only way to really scale it was to hire people. And the only way I could hire people was if I went and raised some investment. Of course, we had some hypotheses about what the business model might be. But, you know, back in 2013, 2012, 2013, like going and raising money for a media company wasn't wasn't easy, you know? It It wasn't easy,
0: although you were catching the upswing, right? Because then it sort of got easier and easier. At least you saw bigger and bigger rounds going into things like BuzzFeed and Vox Media, which is still here today, uh, to the point where by 2015, right, they're raising tens of millions of dollars in a round. So it, it went from something investors wouldn't touch to something they were quite excited about for a little bit. A lot of them were very enthusiastic about Facebook, which is a funny thing to say in late 2018. Um, But that was a big hypothesis. Were the people saying, oh, yeah, you got to figure out how to make this a mobile product or you got to figure out how to get Facebook distribution?
1: I think people were interested in two things. They were interested in the brand that had been developed and there was a real resonance of this thing, the business of fashion. There was a real emotional connection that, you know, BOF had with, you know, the fashion world. And there was also, you know, a genuine community. So... People saw those core assets and they said, "Okay, you know, let's see, let's see what this guy and his team can do." Yeah, you know? and did you?
0: So you raised money in 2012.
1: Yeah, you closed pay, it in
0: 2013. You've got a paywall four years later. Did you see that was that part of the plan? Like this will be a free product and eventually we're going to ask people to pay.
1: Yeah, I always knew at some point we would start charging for the content. The question was when. And back in 2000. 13 we had like 100,000 unique visitors a month. So we really in the first in the early years needed to scale the content from like a couple of articles a week to a more steady flow of content and two we really needed to scale the audience. And so our focus in the early years post investment was really on how do you grow this content Without diluting the quality, let's make more stuff, make more good stuff, attract more readers, and eventually we're going to ask some or all of them to pay us for this content. Exactly, and we of course played around with different types of content, uh, native content, you know, sponsorship, advertising. We tried lots of things. We still do some of those things, but the real focus of the business is now on the subscription business, which is um, you know the kind of main driving force. Today's show is
0: brought to you by Mack Weldon. They make the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you'll ever wear. If you've listened to the show before, you know that I buy Mack Weldon products myself. I wear a lot of socks from them; They're awesome. There's a line of silver underwear and shirts made from naturally antimicrobial fiber that actually eliminates odor. Mack Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping, and they are easy to buy. Go to MacWeldon.com. You'll get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com promo code RECODE. If you don't like your first order, this is amazing. You just keep it. Mac Weldon will send you your money back. It means you get free clothes, but you'll like them. You'll keep them. Get 20% off at MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code RECODE so they know I sent you there. That's MacWeldon.com promo code RECODE. None of this is easy it's all hard and it's hard to get people to pay for this stuff. It seems like if you're gonna ask people to pay your best bet is to do it in a trade environment where you've got to be, uh, people are used to paying for things they might be asking their employers to pay for things maybe they're expensing something. Was that part of your
1: thinking? Absolutely but we were also conscious that there you know pe- while people had become used to paying for media there were you know we had to think about what people were already paying for different products that were available in the market. And, you know, it wasn't 100% clear, like, you, you don't, when you're choosing a pricing for your your product, it's, you know, when you, you kind of have to kind of guess. Yeah, really. did you,
0: what was your initial price? You're at 240 now. What did you go out at? Well,
1: what we did is, you know, we were really conscious of the fact that for almost 10 years, the content had been free. And I really felt a strong obligation to our original readers who had been following BOF from the very beginning to kind of acknowledge their commitment and loyalty because, you know, they really built the brand and the business. They're the ones who shared the content spread it around, talked about it with their friends, just like you asked everyone to do yeah. with your podcast. It, it's really a word of mouth, <laughs> word of mouth brand. So we did an early bird offer where, you know, if people signed up before the paywall actually went up, we gave them a 50% discount on their first year. So it was like a fan club, early adopter. Yeah, it was basically like, you know, it's this is the next natural step in the journey of yep. BOF. Many of the readers had been following since the beginning and actually... I think a lot of them decided to sign up because they really believed in it and then it becomes such a you know critical part of their daily professional life that they wanted to support the continued existence of this thing that had become a critical professional tool.
0: So does the content change once the wall goes up, once you have a new revenue stream, do you go, yeah, let's write this article. Maybe we weren't going to do it prior to this when we
1: were dependent on ad revenue, but now I feel there's more freedom to do that or are you doing the same thing you always were? I think the core focus remains the same. However, the really nice bit about putting up a a paywall is it ups the ante in terms of the whole whole editorial team, I think, feels a much stronger responsibility now that, you know, people are paying for this stuff now. You know, it's not – you can't just get away with – Um, Slapping something up there. No, we take it all very seriously. And our subscription product, membership product, is called BOF Professional. And in and around our editorial meetings now, there's a a phrase of being professional grade. Is Uh this professional grade. And so there's a real—it's been a really nice focal point for our editorial team because we really—it's really upped our game, I think, in terms of what we do. So you can measure what's the most popular
0: story on the site. I was looking today. There's an Amazon story that's predicting the death of Amazon. That's not hard to imagine why that would be popular. Amazon has kind of replaced Apple as the thing people are most interested in. I'm sure it's a huge deal for your readers. What are your paying subscribers most interested in? What do you have a sense of sort of this this kind of article is most likely to convert to a subscription or our subscribers are
1: most interested in this as opposed to people who are browsing the site for free? It's hard to say with a kind of general sweep because uh, the way I think about our community is there's all these personas of different people. You know, there's a strong group of marketing and PR-focused people there's a bunch of people who want to invest in fashion. They're like the Mm -hmm. financial community. There's young people who are looking to kind of, you know, build businesses, entrepreneurs. So when we're commissioning the content, we're thinking, you know, what does our professional reader want? You know, I'm thinking about, well, which part of our community would be interested in it. But all of the things I've just mentioned are interesting. One of the top converting things that we're doing right now is this new series for people building fashion business going b- right back to that first series that I did in February 2007. And there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are reading BOF. And you so These know, are
0: how to think about this. Yeah, how, how, to to find an, how to
1: find an investor, you mm-hmm. know, what you should be doing to acquire users. You know, Lauren Sherman has become one of our top um, writers for this kind of content and people really respond to that. But then again, we do a bunch of stuff on what businesses, investors should be looking at. We're analyzing the rise of influencer marketing, which is very popular with our community. So the thing that all of those things have in common is it's really much more than just information. It's real analysis and recommendations.
0: Yeah. Are the things we think, uh, you know what, I know this piece would generate a lot of attention I'm sure it would generate decent SEO, et cetera, but it doesn't provide any value for our readers fundamentally. Let's skip it.
1: Well, we still have a focus on what we call top-of-funnel content Mm -hmm. because we still want to grow the user base. So our newsletter every day will contain a BOF professional piece, but it will also contain a piece that's designed to sit at the top of the funnel to acquire new users. So when we're commissioning, we're thinking of both of those kinds of of stories. And so sometimes a story that's not professional-grade might be really good on the, the user acquisition side.
0: Again, I want to underscore what a big deal it is to have started a media company 10 years ago and built a new thing that employs 100 people with really very Almost little Almost. Gr- getting close to 100. Getting people. close. Yeah. close enough. Maybe by the time people hear it, you'll have 100. How many times during this journey are people coming to you saying, "This cool business you bought. It's not really going to scale. What I'm going to do is help you out by buying your publication. And, and I'm going to
1: add you to my portfolio of brands, and we're really going to scale you up there have been approaches yeah. but we haven't really taken them very far because you know my focus is always has been on building this business independently you know i think i appreciate the ability to be able to make fast decisions to be able to work with the team that i've built and so while, you know, those opportunities have obviously presented themselves at various points in the journey, it's, it's not been anything we've entertained.
0: And are there opportunities, conversely, for you to, to go out and say, you, Condé Nast or Hearst or whomever, you have a distressed asset over here in Publication X, and I'm going to take it off your hands?
1: Uh, we've never considered that, nope. but, um, you know, maybe I'll go do some homework tonight. Jessica so Lesson,
0: who we both met, makes a point of saying, I want to own fortune. Oh, really? Um, Yeah, and I I don't think she actually wants to own fortune, but it's a nice sort of big, hairy, audacious goal to sort of say, "We're whatever size we are today, we we want to be much bigger. It's aspirational. It helps us both internally and externally. I'm making all this up, except that she says that. Um, But I'm imagining what's going on in her head. And sort of as you're a smaller company, you say, we have this big outsized goal, and that's what we're aiming for. Do you guys have that sort of motivational thing going on?
1: Not about, you know, acquiring another brand. Um, We hire very fortunate to have a very well-known and well-respected brand. And I think perhaps maybe, you know, other smaller companies are looking for the kind of credibility that comes with a, a Fortune or a Forbes or something else that's, you know, distressed out there. But, um... And that's not something I'm particularly concerned about.
0: So we started off talking about the things that are changing in your industry, both the the industry you're covering and the media industry. If you listen to this podcast, you understand what's changing in the media industry. What are the fundamental changes that are affecting fashion that might be resonant to people who listen to this podcast? We We talked about how stuff that like the fashion shows that used to be sort of strictly B2B and didn't sort of leak out
1: into the outside world are now fully displayed for everyone. What else is going on like that? Well, um, there's a big shift of thinking right now on Me Too. And so like other industries where there's been a big power dynamic in place between you know, those at the top and the people at the, the kind of bottom, you know, the power dy- dynamic between men and women mm-hmm. in particular, um, it's really shaken the industry up. And so that has been a real reckoning and what it's led to, is uh, a lot more diversity and inclusivity in the industry. You know, there's there's just a consciousness now that you know. First of all, fashion is a very you know visible business, and everything that happens in the industry is more visible. Whether you know, starting right at the you know early stages of the design and production process, all the way down to you know the way people are treated in a store. And so when you have visibility across across the entire value chain of a, of a, a business a, an industry rather like the fashion industry, then there's a lot more need to be accountable back to consumers so whether that be you know the way the images are created and who's creating them and what's going on between a photographer and a model, whether that be you know the people making the clothes in you know a factory in Bangladesh and that you know you know making sure that they're par- paid a fair wage and they're treated properly or that be um, the way people um, are operating in the retail environment, all of that has now become open and visible to everyone. And somebody's discussed. These are all things that are, you know, we we are really trying to put out there into the forefront. You know, one of the reasons that we're, you know, I was you were asking earlier, we're here this week is we did our BOF 500 event and our four different covers um, were reflective of different issues the industry is grappling with. So we have on the cover a woman named Kalpona Akhtar, who's a, activist in Bangladesh who started working at the age of 12 in a garment factory and she now represents 4 million garment workers in Bangladesh. We have the chairman and CEO of Caring, who's a pioneer in the space of sustainability in the fashion industry. So, etc. And like media, right, and I think even more so in some cases, this is something where there's a bunch of money in the industry,
0: but it's very stratified, right? And a lot of people are willing to work in fashion, I'm assuming, for very little because they like the glamour and they like being associated with it. Maybe it's aspirational for them to make money, but probably not. And you can probably if you, depending on what kind of person you are, you can abuse that
1: imbalance. And then obviously you're just talking about people who literally make the clothes, who make very little money. Um, Do you think $62 a month for a garment worker in Bangladesh? And do you think that's fundamentally going to change? I think it's changing. Yeah. You know, there's a real reckoning going on. And, you know, at the end of the day, the CEOs out there and their boards are going to listen to what consumers want. And because so much of this is now more transparent to consumers and consumers are asking for things, you know, brands are getting much more aware of this. Um, They're thinking a lot more about it. They're even taking much more open political stances. You know, if you look at what what Nike did with this... Um, is that is that in your wheelhouse to cover Nike? Yeah, we cover company? Nike, we cover Target, we cover H&M, yep. you know, and all of these companies are grappling with the same issues. We go from all the way from mass to luxury. And so, you know, I think... There's, there's just like I feel like we're living and you know not just in fashion, just generally we're living at a time of huge change and disruption. And you think this
0: is lasting change, lasting disruption that Nike embracing Colin Kaepernick is not a thing they're doing in 2018, but reflects sort of their values and how they're going to do business for years to come.
1: Yeah, fashion brands and you know Nike, Nike is not alone in this. Are taking much more public political positions. You know, they're they're taking a stance. Gucci, you know, they got involved right after the shooting at the Parkland School in Florida. They got involved in the, you know, the movement of the the young people in that school and, you know, supported them financially and made a big public stance. When the immigration ban uh, happened um, early last year, you know, after a bit of coaxing, a bunch of fashion companies came out and spoke out against it. So, there's just a you know th- this idea of activism and um, is kind of coursing through the world right now. And, and, that no and that's not something you expected to cover when you watched this thing? No, it's been really, really fascinating. And then in terms of other forces, there's obviously technological disruption, there's the rise of the Chinese market, which now drives like a huge portion of the growth in the industry. And there's an obsession with millennial consumers and now their younger brethren, the Gen Z's. Gen Z, familiar to
0: people, not familiar, we've discussed that on on this podcast a few different times. I'm particularly fascinated by Instagram and Facebook and what those things can do as as commerce businesses, is
1: that a focus for you guys? It's something we've looked at. Um, up until now, neither Facebook nor Instagram have proven particularly sell- uh, successful at actually selling stuff.
0: But there are a lot of brands now who are figuring out how to use those platforms. They
1: use those platforms to promote their brands, but the, the transaction right. happens transactions. Yeah, But undeniably particularly Instagram, has become incredibly important in the, in the kind of exchange of information between brands and consumers.
0: Um, so Instagram just announced, I guess formally announced, we're going to do a shopping app. Does did that they makes, announce that or was that a rumor? I, well, it's been reported by Casey Newton from The Verge, so I'm taking it as fact. I don't know if it's formally announced. Yeah. It seems obvious they would want to do that. Does that make sense to you as an actual sort of commerce channel?
1: I mean, I, if it's true that they're launching a completely separate app to do commerce, I I'm not sure I understand that strategy because the consumers are all on the act, right. on Instagram. So, you know, the question is: is how do you how do you connect those two things? Because I think the most natural place to kind of you know, where where the desire is created. Right, let me buy the thing while I'm looking at... The, exactly, why do aware? I have to go to a right. separate app? So I guess we're going to have to wait and see what Instagram eventually announces about their strategy, but I think it's going to be really important that there's not a ton of friction between the desire and the transaction. Do you spend
0: much time looking at Silicon Valley? I mean, do you have people who are based there doing reporting, or is that kind of adjacent to your core stuff, which is no, where the fashion I mean, is? I
1: technology and the disruption of social media and all of the other technologies that have been emerging are a big focus for us. We don't have anyone based in Silicon Valley, but that doesn't mean we can't cover the impact we have relationships with all the big social media companies of like Facebook and Instagram. And you know that's become you know a big part of what we're known for. It, even back in the early days of BOF, you know I started writing about the impact of social media back in 2007. so it's you know certainly a big part of what we do.
0: You are 10 plus years into this. Uh, what is the thing that surprised you the most about building this business?
1: I think the fashion industry has a reputation of being filled with superficial, frivolous, lazy people who socialize all the time. And actually... Some of that, right? Yeah. That makes it fun. There is a glamorous, glossy side to this industry. There's no denying it. We have a lot of fun in the fashion industry, but... What's really unique about fashion is most people are drawn to it just because they have a love and interest in the industry and the products that are created and how they're created. And you're not going to make, you know, necessarily millions of dollars going to work in the fashion industry like you could if you went and work in hedge funds or something else, mm-hmm. right? So, the, you you have a bunch of people from all over the world who are drawn to the industry. And there's like an incredible fabric of very smart, very talented, very committed, very hardworking people who work in this industry. And it's been a real honor and pleasure for me to kind of get to know how the industry works and see all these people and meet them. And they're the ones who taught me everything. It would suck if
0: you were reporting on people you didn't like.
1: Yeah, and that's why, you know, I, I take quite a bit of pleasure in what we do because we work in an industry that's very exciting and it's become really influential and visible and that's given us a platform to really affect change and create impact far beyond what one might have expected for you know what you earlier called a trade publication so there's a real opportunity for us to take this platform and use it responsibly to affect change in fashion and beyond and I I really love that.
0: I promise not to use the words trade publication. That That is fine. Okay, good. This has been great. I think what you have built is really interesting. I love people who build new businesses. They're difficult to build, especially without the aid of of deep-pocketed platforms and friends and investors. So congratulations. Thank you for your time. Thanks for coming on. Uh, And thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media who bring those sponsors to you so you can listen to Recode Media for free. Joel Robbie edits this show. He's awesome. So are my producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. Thanks again, Imran. Thank you. This is Recode Media. We will see you next week.